Hi everybody, this is Michael Collar from Crypto Cappuccino. Today I will be speaking with Michael Bacina, fresh off the heels of the Emergence 2022 conference here in Sydney, Australia. We're going to be talking about all the latest developments in blockchain technology, its application to different, different kinds of businesses, essentially uh, what Michael can provide us, which few other people can, which is a wonderful view of the entire landscape of this ecosystem and all the different kinds of projects and companies and people that occupy it. So I hope you can join us. Cheers. Hi, everybody. This is Michael Collo, uh, and uh, we're here with Crypto Cappuccino with Michael Cappuccino. Hello, Thanks Michael. for having me. And we're live in person, would you believe it? We're actually sitting right next to each other in the offices in downtown Sydney. This is so crazy. I, I, could, I didn't know that I was going to fit into this suit. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people have that challenge after COVID. <laughs> I know I did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite common. But uh, I'm so glad to be here. And while we're not having coffee, we're having tea. I think, nonetheless, we can we can say that we're uh, we're genuinely doing the uh, the podcast. So, Michael, just for all the folks listening, I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit and how you came to be here in this moment of your career. Uh, well, I'm most immediately coming in hot from the end of Blockchain Week, which has been a very full-on and wonderful week with a huge number of people tuning in, seeing videos. Lots of videos will be released online in the next week or so, uh, and then more broadly. I, um, once upon a time as a software developer. I won't pretend that my development skills are great now. My coding is great. I can help my kids in, in learning how they can code. Uh, but during the dot-com days of the late 90s, early 2000s, I ran a small startup, which was um, acquired by one of our clients, okay. thankfully, just before I finished my law degree. So back then, I, it, was, you know, it was unusual to be carrying a laptop to university, which makes me feel my age when I go to universities now because it's just a sea of Apple logos. And, and what were you coding with? Is it, uh, I was all PHP, MySQL. PHP, MySQL. Good old days of, the, of every website being customized, pre-drag and drop code, which was great fun. Uh, and just, you know, near making it up along the way because there was just critical shortages of people doing that. So we had fantastic clients from World Vision to um, people involved in the Sydney Olympics to video stores that now long, no longer exist, um, which, which was an interesting <laughs> to see how those have gone along. Um, but really, a really excellent thing to do, um, you know, during university uh, and, you know, probably spending a little less attention to my subjects than I should have at the time. But that's all right. It's a different kind of education. Uh, which yeah. university? So I did my undergrad at Macquarie and I did a master's at UNSW. Oh, awesome. So, um, you know, that I think rounded, rounded me out there as well. So good good times. And then you went on to a career in law, I guess. That's right. So originally did quite a, a stint in litigation and, and in commercial law as well. And increasingly my tech clients, particularly from when I was running that startup, were just taking over my practice more and more so. And then um, after... Ethereum came out, I was invited to speak to a lawyer's conference about smart contracts. Uh, I think I've written something online about these are a cool little thing that people should be paying attention to. Uh, so I was invited to speak there, uh, foolishly said yes. And then they said, great, can you write a paper? So I um, started writing that paper. And then um, as I started falling down the rabbit hole, canceled everything for the next three days and just smashed that paper out, paused for a moment to, to acquire some ETH. Um, and play with it, <laughs> and then and then was lucky enough to have that paper picked up in, in a few minor journals. And from that conference, a number of lawyers who were in attendance referred me work that they didn't understand. So I went from sort of zero to 100 very, very quickly and having my practice taken over with that ICO boom firing off then, and that we acted for a number of um, 
big projects back then. And then since then, it's just been uh, a, an amazing ride and the most fun I've had in my entire legal career because I get to blend all the exciting um, feeling of those early days of the internet, which, you know, late 90s, I sort of felt like I was on that downhill part of the wave. It was fun, lots of stuff going on, but it wasn't at the start. Whereas I very much had that feeling diving into blockchain six years ago of, you know, this is the start of something that's really going to change everything in the same way that the internet did, but possibly faster. And I won't try and make predictions on how fast everything will change, but this year really feels like things are changing in a meaningful way with things like the ANZ stablecoin announcement and a whole raft of other amazing announcements coming out last week. Really feels like the needle is moving in a meaningful way and the government's starting to move towards um, proper regulatory frameworks that'll help you know boost Australia's position. It's um, really incredible to have that support from you know government, which on something really technical that's hard to understand. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, how did you find that conference actually? Remember that as well. The blockchain twenty twenty two was yesterday, last week. So all last week. So I, I I serve on the board of Blockchain Australia. So we've all been hard at work, but mostly Steve Dallas, our CEO, and his team. And the conference ran Monday, Tuesday, Sydney. Uh, Wednesday, Melbourne, Thursday was Perth, and Friday was Brisbane. It's incredible. So it was more than 200 speakers. I don't even know. I think we went into the millions of impressions on various things, and I know we had 6,000 people on the live feeds for the Monday, which for a a blockchain conference out of Australia is pretty incredible. I had the um, great pleasure of interviewing Sam Bankman-Fried Monday morning and Anatoly of Solana on Tuesday morning. I was into the NFT panel on Wednesday. Um, Really incredible. Just the brains that were in the room. Um, and sharing knowledge and just getting to see people. As you say earlier, it's wonderful being able to see people again. We had quite a few people go down with COVID during the week, but so far, (laughs) I'm tested clean. Everyone's everyone's okay. Um, But really getting back to see people is, people is so much of the, and community is so much of any industry and blockchain uh, and cryptocurrency is no different. I I think what I I loved about it was that it was the only conference where it was properly shared around the States. So you didn't have the sense that, oh, no, we're only going to do this in one city. If, you, if you're interested in this topic, you have to be in that city. Mm. And usually Sydney or Melbourne will kind of get that. Whereas in this case, it was really properly like around the country. It's Absolutely. Probably, maybe next time, stop in Tasmania. But, uh, you know, there, was some, there were some satellite events in Launceston. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't, get to, I didn't get down to Tasmania, but Adelaide had some events as well um, a couple of weeks earlier in South Start. So huge hats off to the Blockchain Australia team who just knocked it out of the park. Last year, it was just Sydney and Melbourne and was completely oversubscribed. But um, all of the events were waitlisted for the In Real Life events. I think we had 10 times oversubscribed for the ASX. Unfortunately, still some COVID restrictions in place. So some of the venues uh, couldn't take more people. But um, it was the the overwhelming response was huge. Having, you know, two senators present on Monday as well in the ASX auditorium is, is a big deal. ASX kindly hosted us last year to have that back a second year in a row is is really amazing. And just the names coming in that ca- that came and presented, again, mostly remote, but that's just the nature of, I think, many of them were worried if they came to Australia, they could end up in, uh, in these COVID camps they've heard about, <laughs> which I think is just in, yeah, no, just in Queensland, not down here. It's all finished now, right? I mean, I, I think from April, they don't even need to take, I think, a uh, COVID test to get on a plane. Uh, well, but, I mean, it, it's, it's as you say, the, uh, the feeling is still there. But I'm curious about, to your impression of the week, what were some of the highlights? I mean, you've already mentioned the said, or maybe to elaborate on that, but some of the other highlights where you think over the last six years, you've seen this industry grow and grow in sophistication, awareness, uh, adoption, essentially. And what do you think kind of stood out to you in this week where you thought, ooh, that, that really changed something, that there's something really happening? Well, I think that um, 
the ANZ announcement is probably the big or, or second biggest announcement of the week. Um, also, you know, for personal self-interest, we saw FTX Australian launch, um, which had a little bit to do with, uh, and that's fantastic to see such a major global player coming in and having an official Australian presence. Uh, Australia is really taken seriously in the in the space, and we punch above our weight in crypto and blockchain, which is fantastic. Having the whole day on Wednesday of NFT Day um, was also a real point of the week. Having you know, NBL Commissioner Cricket Australia and Tennis Australia on panel all talking about their journeys. Um, we've been lucky enough to be involved with Tennis Australia on the AO Art Ball, which was um, absolute world-leading. They're going to continue to lead the way on that. And I, it wasn't noticed, I think, as much. It certainly wasn't picked up in the press, but um, Ridley, the director of NFT and Metaverse there, said during his panel, this NFT will become like the VIP pass to the Australian Open in future. And that was just a little comment that, that was made on the panel that I certainly sat up on and went, people need to pay attention to this. Mm. NFTs are, are still a sleeper. You see all the, all the little articles in the AFR saying, oh, it's all just it's not investing, it's wild speculation and whatnot. But it's a brand new product and having that whole day that people could really be learning about it and hearing from particularly sports. Sport will lead the way massively in Australia for NFTs everyone's going to be slicing up the golf green or the finish line or something and create, or creating player NFTs or turning their tickets into NFTs. That is going to be the part that is visible to a lot of people. And that's going to spread into the real world, as it were, because something like the AO project was put together in something like nine weeks, the whole thing. And that open source code that lives in blockchain and the crypto world can be leveraged in ways that proprietary code bases can't. You could not put together an entire new digital product that is a quasi-loyalty system in nine weeks from the start. You just can't do it. It's not going to happen. But with all of the open source tools that are there using Ethereum in exactly the same way that the ANZ Bank issued their payment on the Ethereum blockchain, it's a $30 million transaction. It was not fully public. You know, anyone participated. It was a closed loop for testing, but it wasn't done on a private permission chain. It was done live. You can look it up on Etherscan and see the test transactions and then the $30 million transaction that they did. And that's really impressive that you're seeing businesses recognize all these open source tools are incredible. And that's no different to the internet, right? Linux and Apache, you know, they run the internet. All these open source tools are operating in servers globally and, put, and keep it all together. And that open source movement has been the subject of criticism over time. It's got an entire amazing community around it. When it came out, people were very threatened as against their proprietary code bases but now it's embraced as saying, this is a better way to work and build in code. And in blockchain, certainly when everything is under constant attack, people are starting to recognize, hang on, because this has been under constant attack from when it was built from day one, it ends up being better than the perimeter security that exists under existing systems that if that gets breached, um, it's a really serious problem that people run, are racing around to fix versus that inbuilt protection that you simply get ongoing. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that smart contracts are perfect. As they get more sophisticated, there will be more sophisticated attacks and attempted hacks, and things get complicated there as well. But the rigor that has to be brought to that code and the fact that what comes out in the libraries and pre-made code is already battle-tested is really, really valuable. And that's a huge mind shift. So even people looking to say, oh, maybe I'll be looking to invest in a business that does sports collectibles. It's like, well, congratulations. They might've already got the hard, hard earned licenses, but now they don't need to spend whatever it would cost to build a proprietary system and a closed loop marketplace that they have to build a user base for. They can shoot that out on ERC 721s or something else fast. They can use a 
non-proof-of-work blockchain if they want to have, you know, like Algorand or Solana or something to have really fast or ETH once it switches to proof-of-stake and have, you know, no environmental impact whatsoever, but all the benefits of super-fast trading, collecting royalties, it's huge. I think that we're going to see near all ticketing of near everything switch to NFTs very rapidly. And I'll be very interested to see, I have a personal theory that perhaps we might even see things like concerts selling tickets cheaper but collecting money on the secondary transactions and allowing the scalpers and allowing the market to do its work because there's a whole lot of work that goes into the selling of tickets at various events that's very risky for the promoters and they might find that it's cheaper to sell everything the same price and let those prices move up and down where they belong and simply take 5, 10, whatever it is, percentage clip on secondary sales and the maths may very well work to say this is better overall and um, you may find that fans like it better as well because there isn't so much of a, oh, scalpers get this block in advance in order to help fund the um, concert that might happen, which is something that I know happens in America. I'm not sure how much it happens here versus simply saying, well, we can release it to the market fast and easy and early and collect on the transactions going through in the back end without any expensive proprietary systems. Um, so it's a fascinating way that it might end scalping as we know it and give everyone a fairer distribution of of ticketing, but then still allow people who want to go in there and speculate on maybe I could pick up Taylor Swift tickets cheap and flip them um, because I get a, a better allocation or whatnot, which is then just fairer to everyone. Everyone becomes a scalper, bad, but everyone has a good opportunity, good. And and, uh, and good, you just create a new asset class for people to speculate on, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> but people, people speculate anyway. Exactly. So right. then it's a question it's of- more efficient. Correct, but you can also then stop people buying 100 tickets at once through, you know, unless they're sending up lots yeah, of wallets. Exactly. If you want KYC, it can be done. All the tools are there and they're fast and cheap to deploy. So this is quite interesting because now you're saying that the market forces a lot of these things that are a bit clunky are a more efficient way. So if I release tickets, if I'm a concert promoter, I've got um, this difficult decision of how much money do I spend or how much money do I charge people for that ticket. That's right. And obviously, if, you, if I get in early, I might be able to buy it at that price and later on, that won't be able to, et cetera. But now I can release it into this open market where people can bid in real time and the, and the, and the price will fluctuate. They can use a bonding the curve if they want. So it gets more expensive the longer you wait. Exactly. Same right. thing with everything, um, sports tickets as well. So people waiting to see if they can pick up something cheap. That's right. They might be able to dive in earlier and faster. 30 seconds before it starts, you can probably just pick up something literally in the app. That's and right. And what holds that back at the moment is you have to use crypto to pay for it. And that's why you have these interlocking, really interesting things coming out. There's stable coins which are there that can be a little difficult to get hold of because there's uncertainty around regulation. But now we have ANZ moving in and other banks getting interested as well because no one wants to be first, but no one wants to be last. So it'd be very interesting to see how the other banks respond to that um, because once we get to a point where you have retail access to a bank-issued stablecoin, the confidence in using that, I, I believe, will dramatically increase. And of course, you do have crypto maxis who will say, oh, this was... I think someone commented on a, on a LinkedIn post I made saying, wasn't the point of crypto to replace the banks? To which I replied, you better, you better set up a meeting and tell the banks tell the banks they're not allowed to use this open software. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, this isn't for you. This is for something else. But it's really important. I think there's always going to be a whole lot of things in the market and letting people have choice is critical. Um, and so there will be, I think, for quite a while, people will have trust in the banks because they already do. And it's as long as it's done in a win-win for the bank and you have a one-to-one -one backing, that will unlock a huge amount of, of benefits. And, and, then, and then it's very interesting because I remember when fintechs were the big thing. So back in, I don't know, 2010, 2012, whatever it was. And there was a real sense of we're going to disrupt the financial system. And then nothing happened for years and years. 
And I remember uh, commenting on an article, which I go into a lot of trouble for, saying most fintechs, it's better for you to create a technology that a bank will buy than really to be uh, pretend to be a bank because it's a lot more complex than that, a lot more sophisticated than that. And obviously with foreign exchange and these kinds of activities were the first ones to fall to the fintech world. That's right. It was very transactional, but a whole bunch of things around risk assessment, maturity transformation, et cetera, never fell. And I think maybe in a similar kind of way, when blockchain becomes um, sort of accepted to be secure and, and commonplace because it's evolving, because it's getting better and because people have heard it more after a while, you should absolutely expect that those big institutions that you've been framing this as, as being an alternative to are the first ones to go and invest in it and to embrace it and to use it well, if it's better. That's right. And they're moving in already and we're seeing amazing permission systems as well. So one of my favourite little projects is Ligon, um, which... You know, disclosure, I'm, I'm a shareholder in for a very tiny and love it because they replace paper bank guarantees that nobody likes. So anyone taking out a retail lease or even an office lease and on construction projects, so many situations require a piece of paper from a bank, which is a bearer instrument, you know, essentially now often made out to the company to say, if company X comes along and asks for this, we will pay the money and they can get lost. I worked in-house for a while and on one horrible day, a big bank guarantee was lost and we all had to, everyone had to stop work and find it. And Goodness knows the inefficiencies of everyone stopping work to find a, a lost bank guarantee. It was, it, was in, it was locked in a cabinet. It was found pretty quickly, but that's super inefficient. And that is a permissioned on IBM Hyperledger. So it's not a, you know, it's not a public blockchain, but that's the baby steps that happen. And such that uh, we have now been the first law firm in the country to accept a payment guarantee instead of um, trust money for a matter. And that's really exciting from my perspective because it's just as safe for a client, but has dramatically lower costs um, versus trust accounting and audits and those kinds of things. Um, and we never need to call on it, but if we did, it's just a button push away. And all the banks, and that, that company is owned principally by banks and um, has property developers coming in as well and saying, well, we wish to use this now because bank guarantees are a really expensive and slow way to do things versus being able to issue something straight out of internet banking, click a button and issue it. And that's not too dissimilar in some ways to a stable coin of sorts. It's just a one-off unique token that can be issued to say, right, Michael needs a bank guarantee for something, you can take it, 5,000, 10,000, whatever it is. The cost of issuing it is so minuscule now because it's all used this open source tech to come in that it's easy to roll out. It's not something that the banks had to spend huge amounts of money building and therefore wish to find a way to recover it. As someone you know, said to me, well, what's in it for ANZ to have a stable coin? I said, well, what's in it for any bank to have cheaper, faster transactions for their customers? It's better. They don't make a huge amount of money on transactional matters. It's a cost to run payment rails like that. If there's a better payment rails that can be used and integrated, then why wouldn't they want to? Uh, you know, our systems in banking are incredibly old and they're very tested and, and, and super high security, but the ways that, that you can interface now with amazing technology and particularly unlocking the real promise of smart contracts for automated escrow arrangements, for payments of things, deposits, it's wonderful because Equally, law firms don't love to hold people's money in escrow for transactions, which we can do for, for business transactions, but it's painful. It has a very administrative heavy. It's got a lot of risk to it and worries people, keeps them up late at night to make sure everything works perfectly. Running that out of a smart contract where everything is set up to keep it safe and does the automatic logic, if this then, with two to sign off or two or three to sign with backups to work is a fantastic way of simply unlocking automation and efficiency. So I always say to people, all blockchain and cryptocurrency is at the end of the day, is automation and efficiency like any technology. And it's got some incredible promise and there's a lot of experimentation and some of the, that experimentation feeds into you know, narratives that 
naysayers like to push down the down the road in their wheelbarrow, but those wheelbarrows are running out of air in the tyres or falling over increasingly. Mm. Um, because when you see people like ANZ moving into the space, when you see all of these sporting organisations going, well, this works, and it's a new revenue source for, in many cases, what are not-for-profits at the end of the day. They're there to deliver sports to people. That really starts to shift the conversation. I mean, even, you know, Elizabeth Warren in, in America and, and others have gotten up to say, well, oh, maybe... Maybe Russia could be using this to get around sanctions and instantly other people say, well, let's look at the data. No. <laughs> yes, transactions went up 10 times from $2 million to $20 million a day. $20 million a day is not sanction-evading transaction levels. Um, and that transparency is incredible. And now, you know, within a week, Chainalysis had issued tools to exchanges to allow free tools. They said everyone can have this so that you can make sure that you're not dealing with Russian crypto just because they saw as well, I think, the narrative of, Ooh, crypto bad. This will be used to evade sanctions. Go, no, it's the worst system to be used to try and avoid um, laws or commit crimes because of that traceable nature. And that's slowly cutting through, you know, seven years of, of um, I suppose, bad news because it, it was used, Bitcoin was used heavily in the early Silk Road days. And it meant that the academic papers came out, you know, 2018, 2019, saying, oh, look at all this bad yeah. use. And those papers are only catching up now for the data to say, well, actually, you know, it's 0.34 or something less than that. Sorry, 0.15% of transactions, which overall still works out to, I think, 14 billion. But I tell you what, if there was 0.15% of money laundering and illicit activity in the cash economy, the government would be patting itself on the back to say, what an amazing system we have that has almost only one-tenth of a percent of illicit activity that we can track. I guess extraordinary that that narrative continues to be pushed of, isn't it just for, you know, put for criminals and drug dealers? And you go, no, the data is right there, guys, and you can't argue with the data. And I think the other, the other big argument, isn't it, is about electricity usage and mining and so on. I remember there's a bunch of articles that came out that said Bitcoin uses the you know, electricity consumption of the UK and so on. And then that is an interesting area, but I, whenever I read that kind of thing, first of all, it's hard to know what the relative comparison is like. So how much electricity does the US dollar take to get around? Obviously much bigger than, than Bitcoin is. In terms of volume, but I suppose the other question for me is also the fact that this is version one of these technologies. And so, for example, Ethereum, well, that's you, see, right. you see coming out with the next version, you see proof of stake, proof of work kind of differences, you see um, just, just the, the kind of energy reduction in some of these improvements is 99.7 percent. It's crazy. And I haven't read all the details behind it, but it feels to me like it's again to, to your point about it's being a starting industry. In, over the last six years, it's probably attracted some incredible engineering brains. So we see every week articles about Google, Facebook losing people to blockchain. And now increasingly we're seeing from my industry, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan's and lawyers. Uh, and, and, and lawyers going into the space. It feels like it's got a huge brain drain on nearby industries. It does. It's it's become you know almost PayPal mafia effect, right? There's been so many businesses that grew so fast, and this creation of wealth has been so gigantic that that's now being reinvested back in. And that's the proof of the pudding when you see, um, you know, Alameda Research, Sam Bankman-Fried's investment vehicle is just reinvesting in so many amazing projects and Coinbase Ventures. And so many exchanges have now got venture arms and, and are in some ways giving back, but they also recognize that if the money's not put in to help keep development moving along, that's not good for the industry. So rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. Really, that reinvestment is massive. And the PayPal mafia has been behind a huge amount of the FANG extension of, of the internet. So there's a, there's a model there of people reinvesting a lot of what they've made back in, which is great for them and great for the industry as well. Look, the electro electricity one, I don't usually like to engage in whataboutism, but um, there was a great paper that pointed out that during one year, 
more electricity was burned in, on watching cat videos than <laughs> cryptocurrency. It's a few years ago, but like that's the biggest one I've, I often go to and say, okay, whataboutism is not great, except that if you want to criticize stuff, that's fine, but let's measure apples. It's very, very hard to measure the real world or of financials because you say, okay, well, a payment rails that's global and near instant, how do you replicate that? Well, you have a lot of armored cars, you have physical banks, you have the entire SWIFT network, you have planes flying cash around, you have printing of currency. What is there to create an, a global currency system is, I dare say, near unmeasurable in terms of carbon, carbon footprint and all of the lights on and, and security that go into it. It may very well be bigger than blockchain's consumption. Now, when you look at a per transaction basis, I don't even know how that comes through because it's probably less, right? Let's be fair. An FPOS transaction or, or a MasterCard or Visa transaction, and they do you know, hundreds of thousands a second. I do not think that could be anywhere near the Bitcoin per transaction yeah. um, consumption. But you are seeing this incredible rise of um, ESG concerns and renewables. Uh, and we're seeing, even in Australia as well as overseas, the dramatic increase in mining um, operations being located at the source because there's a significant 20 to 30% step down of electricity lost when it goes through high voltage transmission. And so if you locate your mining routes at the wind turbines, at the coal plant, at the gas plant, at the solar farms, instantly there's a 20 to 30% uplift of what, you can, what they can take in electricity. And there's this very interesting point about people criticizing, oh, it's not always sunny or, or windy and there's a mismatch of solar and renewables to the stabilization of the grid. And there's two ways to solve that. Well, three ways. One is do nothing and just lose the money. One is to put very expensive batteries in and battery tech is moving, but it's just not at a point where that's viable for a lot of projects. Or I think someone used the description, a money battery, where they say you put in mining rigs, that's right. you're using 100% renewables when the price of electricity is dropped below basically the value of putting it in the rigs. And instantly those projects have a return, which they wouldn't otherwise have. And that can help, we're seeing it start to emerge now. Projects are saying, we will put this in because it helps us have a ROI faster on our renewables. There was a, a big hit when China pushed out a lot of mining because China has significant um, hydroelectric resources. And a lot of the rigs in Canada are you know, hydroelectricity. In fact, in Canada, they refer to electricity as their hydro bills and whatnot because so much of it is on um, hydroelectric systems. But we have significant hydro in Australia down south, um, huge solar coming online. And that balancing out, you, know, you only have to look at Tesla battery in South Australia that paid for itself in a fraction of the expected time because of its stabilization effect on the grid there. And these interconnectors coming in to say, this is, you know, we're gonna have mismatch. We're gonna have negative prices on electricity. That can be used in right now, proof of work pretty heavily. Proof of stake, as you point out, is incredibly low energy costs. There are some other trade-offs, but that is all solving in, and being um, moved through to you know not high gas fees, very, very cheap transactions. These sort of true next generation blockchains like Algorand and Solana and things like that that can move things at near fraction of penny fees and near zero electricity cost. They're the ones that are sort of coming for the old school world because they can compete on a level playing field. You're right, Bitcoin's interesting because it's also designed to be slow to change. And I'm not sure it'll ever move from proof of work. There are people who are very firmly of the view that proof of work is the only way to secure a network of that size and of a view that proof of stake has fundamental concerns. And they may be right. I don't know. At that level, my technical knowledge starts to get into the into you know some of these esoteric analysis of how proof of stake compares to proof of work. But fundamentally for most people, there will be enough convenience of shifting into a more secure system that offers benefits and interoperability that 
they won't mind some of those issues. And there's other ways to, to manage those issues that on a net position might be better than those overall proof of work. But, you know, essentially those narratives are falling away now because they can't survive against the data of, well, no, there are solutions right here that are perfectly fine and cheap to use. Hey, it also kind of reminds me a little bit of the remember self-driving kind of arguments at the beginning kind of said that you have to have the perfect driving car. And then you had to correct them and say, no, 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 you just have to have better than humans. And humans aren't that good. So, so having the right benchmark, which is obviously in this particular case, what is the consumption of a financial economy as the movement of money around so that we understand what that That's benchmark right. is today, so that we understand if we are introducing an alternative like Bitcoin or anything else, um, we understand where that, where that line is. If we think that the line is zero, then basically any, anything that consumes electricity, then obviously it feels like it's a really bad thing. And in the same kind of way with the self-driving cars, as soon as we went, what is the average driver, how many accidents do they cause, how many fatalities do they cause, et cetera, then you're able to say, well, uh, we think that autonomous cars are 30%, 40% lower than the average driver. Correct. They still have accidents. They're not flawless. But that's okay. Their, their goal is not to be flawless. Um, and, and well, they can, they can strive for that. Yeah. I view it similar to airplanes, right? You're never going to have a world without airplane accidents. But the mindset of that design is what is needed. But the amount of ink that's been printed or digitally printed on, you know, oh, how will we deal with the ethics of how a car will choose, you know, how it will crash <laughs> and things that I look at and go, that's just silly. That's like saying we can't have autopilots because how would an autopilot work in a plane if it had to decide where to crash? And, of course, the answer is they never will. And so they're really interesting academic thought experiments, but they're like the trolley problem. They simply never arise in reality. You know, if, if something goes wrong in an airplane, the airplane tries to keep itself going in the same way a self-driving car will try to protect the people inside the car full stop you won't ever have enough data coming into those systems to learn enough to figure out, will we steer to, to run over the old lady instead of the young child? And I think it's just, it's, it's, it's just not realistic. As you say, if there's an incremental improvement, you know, cars with auto braking, there was no question about it. Yes. Occasionally when I, you know, if a cyclist zips past me, past me when I'm in my wife's car, it lights up like a Christmas tree and slams the brakes on because somebody's come too close for the sensors. That's also not perfect because it freaks me and everyone in the car out when we're driving along and we're no, no danger of somebody who's, who's coming on, you know, in their bike lane, but it's just technology is not quite perfect. However, I 100% feel safer having a car that will turn the brakes on. I remember that car started braking once before I even saw the glass flying up of two cars in front of me crashing into each other. And I just went, this is incredible that, the, that you know, this car that's a couple of years old, so the technology is not brand new, but had enough sensors to somehow work out that the cars in front had slowed down enough before I realised, and I was fully paying attention, but... Everything just started breaking moments before I even started to hit the brake and stopped well clear of that. And that was like a, a turn to your example. I went, this is an amazing improvement. It doesn't need to be perfect. It's not going to save us in every circumstance, but if it's better than what we have and it doesn't have additional costs. And that's something we saw with, you know, the Facebook stable coin, um, the, the whole Libra project just got mercilessly attacked trying to reach this like, how will you make it perfect? How will you address these? And to, to their credit, they got up and said, well, we will address it so it will be as good as the current systems, but the political environment, certainly the, the recent Forbes reporting on it and, and, and um, other journalists coming out and saying, well, it really died because it was Facebook behind it um, and it was the vitriol coming at them from their previous past um, issues, which is really unfortunate, but you saw that, that was they were held up to a standard that was literally impossible to reach. And if you put every new technology under that standard, we wouldn't have the internet. You know. no, no. And, and, and I, think, I think with blockchain and with technologies like this, as you say, when people ask me, I'm sure they'd ask you a lot, what is blockchain? Can you explain it to me? And the first few times you have a go, and then after a while you start to think, 
Okay, do you understand how concrete is mixed? <laughs> no? Okay, so do you care? I mean, because it's a foundational part of a system. And so if you don't understand how today transactions or data is moved around or secured and so on, then your ability to understand an alternative system to that, um, for example, traditional kind of blockchain uh, idea, then you're going to be kind of coming at this from cold and you're going to be asking lots of kind of foundational questions about what, what a system like this should do or shouldn't do. And so I'm, I'm kind of, I think personally that, the, that probably the conversation will move on in the next four or five years, not to the concrete foundations of the things that we're building today, but, you know, the, the decorations in the house and, and the structure of the house and the kind of second layer, third layer projects that get built on top of these types of blockchains. But speaking of which, I, th- I feel like there's a really important question I want to ask you, which is what do you think about the, or, or the regulation part of this whole narrative? I feel like you mentioned there was two senators there uh, at Blockchain 2022, Obviously, there's a lot of questions. People are, are waiting and wondering. And it feels like it's a good thing to have regulation. Because I think for most of us, we'll be like, this is a great thing. Now we can have some clarity about some areas. We can have some guidance in other areas. Perhaps we can even work with the government in different initiatives and those kinds of things. I mean, where, where, where do you see that that kind of going this year or next? Or? It'll, I think it'll depend heavily on the election outcome. So the Liberal Party has been quite active Minister Hume and Senator Bragg in particular, and just being across and understanding digital assets. The you know the entire originally started as a fintech regtech review, then became you know Australia as a financial and technology centre, and the final report was all digital assets. Um, so currently, the Liberal Party is three to one on sports bet, not 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 phenomenal odds. Um, but someone was saying to me this morning, they found it amusing that Australians bet on their election outcomes and, no, and other countries don't tend to do that, but it's a good measure of where's, where's the money going. Um, prediction markets are a powerful thing. Uh, however, you know, um, our Prime Minister has pulled rabbits out of hats before on elections, but I think that if the Liberal Party is returned, we will see that that come through relatively swiftly. I think it'll be a bit slower if, if um, Labor come in. They are working to understand it. I have met with a number of um, senior Labor figures, but that education journey is really important. And you're right, we are not at the point of which we say it's like a light switch turned on or it's a you can go to Bunnings and buy a light switch and you know it will fit your house because of standards. But I do explain to people and say blockchain is nothing but standards at the end of the day. Email only works because your computer is reading the ones and zeros that are sent by somebody else's computer in the appropriate way to spit it out as in, as in a, an email with a picture attached. Without that common agreement to use a standard, there's nothing. And standards require education for people to understand why they should change to that standard. And that creates challenges. There's also the issue of people saying, ooh, something's unregulated, thus it must be dangerous. And you go, well, most of our economy is unregulated in that there is a baseline of laws like the Australian Consumer Law, unfair contracts, a whole lot of laws that apply. But people just assume those away and say, oh, we don't regulate everything. We go, yes, we do. We are actually one of the highest regulated countries in the world. The Australian Consumer Law is very strong consumer protection and gives you a lot of rights if you wish to go to court. But people often think of regulation as there is someone overseeing it and giving a yes or no as to whether or not something should proceed. And that's a very different kind of regulation because that's a, you know, cannot be done without permission versus here are baselines. And if there's a breach, there's a court system or, or regulators who can sue. I mean, I mean, the Facebook and Australian Office of the Australian Information Commissioner cases about the Cambridge Analytica data breaches are still working their way through the courts. So regulators have a role to play, but also, when something is so new, just like the internet, the, the law lags behind as a feature, not a bug, and it takes a time to get across tech because you equally don't want to accidentally um, crimp what is an innovative area. 
with huge potential. Australia is punching above our weight. We are attracting talent. I feel like we are finally stopping the movement offshore. And I had a number of clients who, who left offshore years ago saying we can get regulatory clarity from other um, regulators in a way that just doesn't happen in Australia. And there's cultural reasons for that. And there's reasons why our regulators were set up in these ways that weren't perhaps as embracing as you know Berlin or Singapore regulators are that can come forward and be highly engaging. That's not something we'll ever see in Australia. But certainly around when you have centralised exchanges saying, we would like to be licensed, please. We are sitting on, you know, as, as one said, a billion dollars of client assets with no rules around it other than we have told our clients what we're doing. And of course, I say, well, there are rules. You're not allowed to engage in misleading and deceptive conduct. So you have to do what you've said. But their concern is not so much for them. I think their concern is more for, it is very easy for competitors to come in, custody things in a similar way, which isn't you know, financial services custody. It's just colloquially referred to as custody. But when one person is in a position of being able to potentially steal someone else's money or stuff, that is a line over which regulation often comes, which makes perfect sense. You know, solicitors trust accounts and solicitors are highly regulated to make sure that people are there because people can steal other people's money. And there is unfortunately circumstances of, you know, usually sole practice, practicing lawyers who get a gambling problem or something and, and then dip into their trust account and it doesn't happen very much, but it does happen. And banks and financial services are all highly regulated because someone could steal someone else's money. Similarly, you know, the risk of hacks and things in digital currency exchanges is there. So, and they want the regulation. So I think that we will see that happen. And we will see that, you know, the suggestion at the moment is that Digital Services Act separate to the Corporations Act, which is a really good idea. Trying to put old laws on new tech is very, very hard and leads to very strange outcomes. But having a licensing regime that's fit for purpose, the consultation paper released last week says it'll be technology neutral. I have philosophical issues with tech neutrality because when you do anything, it is never neutral. As the old saying goes, everything's political. Simply doing nothing is also a position. Um, and this is being designed for a particular technology. So I don't see how it can be, but at least trying to ensure that we're not endorsing, you know, you must do this in this such and such a smart contract way is what they often mean by tech neutrality. They're saying, no, no, we're setting the principles that you must meet. So that's, I think, really, really important that that, that aspect is followed. Um, I think that kind of licensing regime will hopefully come through no matter who wins the election. It just might take a bit longer yeah. um, under one party's, uh, under one result. But that's, that is important. And I think for centralised stuff really helps cement the industry as, as serious players because you may see tradfi people saying, oh, they don't even have regulations. They could run away with all the money at any time. Like, we can't take them seriously. But you see people like Fidelity offering custodial services all around the world. Um, it's, it, it's amazing how you have traditional finances moving into the space and saying, we know how to do this. In the, in the traditional world, we can learn how to deal with it in the cryptocurrency world. So therefore we can come in and help. That's, that's also in the same way of having banks issue stable coins, super beneficial because they bring the trust for regulators and the trust for the people who are not really familiar with it to say, well, you know, I've used them for a long time. Therefore, I'll use them for this because they have looked into it. And then, and they also have to meet PI insurance and other requirements. So in this black swan event, there may be some protection. And again, there'll always be the maxis to say, you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, keep it all yourself. You know, get your safety deposit box and keep everything locked away safe and 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 um, protect yourself that way. And that's fine. That's a, that's a piece of the market that will operate in that way forever. And that's the same way that people might want to keep cash under their under their um, pillow or in their safety deposit box or bullion or something like that. There's a healthy market there. 
and they shouldn't be deprived of that. And similarly, there's exotic, highly decentralized things where there is very limited scope for regulation to play a part because it's, it's interesting in that the regulators here have to look at um, the, best, you know, the best alternative, classic negotiation analysis, what will happen if we regulate? And we've seen already examples around the world that locations that put down something that amounts to a ban or is so difficult to be unworkable simply sees the technology move elsewhere. And that's happened as well with the internet where countries are not um, friendly towards critical technology, they simply move. And that is the globalized world we live in. There is some level of regulatory arbitrage which happens. And then it is very difficult to stop someone overseas from offering a product into another country by virtue of the way the internet works because it itself is a distributed system designed to still keep working if there's you know, a nuclear attack on, on parts of the network. It's a really robust network. And that network itself, having a money layer on it in cryptocurrency means that the regulation needs to strike a really important balance of attracting in and protecting um, both consumers and the innovation, which is a very hard balance. So there's a lot of people in the room far smarter than I that are consulting. I'm lucky enough to be in there helping just a little bit, but it's a very, very difficult balance to strike. So it will have to be principles-based and then look at identifying bad actors to, to hold them to account because if it's too prescriptive and onerous, it simply won't uh, work for Australia. Our market isn't big enough. The US can get away with it because there's such an incredibly huge market that they can put quite a few requirements on it. But even so, with the current position of the SEC on, say, token sales, it's just meant that no Americans can access initial token sales because they've all moved away to other countries in geo-blocked America because the SEC has been so aggressive. And, you know, the, the Ripple and SEC case continues and it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. But some people take the view that Ripple seems to be winning. Um, and maybe we might see some regulation in America in particular that slowly moves things towards a way that gives access to that market. Um, but other countries simply don't have that benefit. We have the the risk of losing it that the, that the government and regulators need to be more akin to. And they're so often skewed towards the consumer protection side that it's it's harder to have that innovation side because those are two very popular talking points. Well, and going back to the study of how do you quantify each, right? So the GDP growth from uh, industry investment and essentially growing out this as an industry, the amount of jobs that it will create, the amount of technology jobs that it will create, the amount of innovation it will pull into this country and therefore be a leader in this industry, just like in hydrogen, just like in other sort of space tech and various other initiatives that the government has, has to be quantified and put a number against the potential losses of the consumer on the other side. But I think I think the consumer losses is one angle. And I can see that with the entry of the mainstream banks and bigger financial institutions, that topic might just kind of go into the background. It might just be subsumed within the risk management and tolerance of these organizations. I guess for me, the part that's particularly interesting is somebody who is involved with the trading of these assets or kind of investment of these assets is, is primarily around how APRA and other institutions will think about systematic risks involved with the way that cryptocurrencies and various tokens behave through time and how that fits in with the asset allocation. So slightly different things. I think I think a lot of the conversation today has been talking about how blockchain can change and, and, and upscale industries and create efficiencies and automation efficiencies, as you very um, succinctly put, which I think is exactly right. I mean, there's this whole other conversation, which is what happens when asset allocation across this country starts to favor this asset class and therefore the risk returns associated with it and all the other characteristics. But that feels like it's a whole other... I know. Uh, so, so, I'm not going to open that up because it's... It's, it's hard that one for a bit later exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. But that's all, that is a, an interesting one because then it gets into a consumer choice point. And sure. that is, a, I, I think, at a very high level. That's a regulators having to deal with, here's some interesting stuff that people wish to do. 
Because I, I read comments like that saying, well, we're very concerned if there's a CBDC because what if people run to that and, and it creates runs on the banks? Um, to which you look at and say, but if people wish to flee to gold right now, they can. They could take all their money out of their account and move it around into a gold ETF. Like people can run, run the bank right now if they want to. If so, they can have gold, they can have gold ETF. Well, that's right. They can, they can have gold itself relatively quickly as well. But the fastest move is into a, is into a financial product that there is quick access to. Um, so that almost then starts to pull the curtain back a little bit on, well, hang on a minute. If anyone has to do a large transaction out of their internet banking, they suddenly run into their daily transfer limits, which is what I really think it's about, saying, oh, hang on a minute. Most people don't run into those unless they're you know, making a car purchase or a high-value transaction where they start to hit them and then they get annoyed. And there's a bit of that aspect to it as well to say, hey, well, hang on, if people start moving large amounts around quickly, they're going to notice that there's all these breaks on shifting cash around in the existing system, which don't exist in the crypto system. And that I could see absolutely why you'd have our app and RBA looking at that and saying, this, we have a system that has roadblocks and speed bumps and things to slow things down when there's trouble. Cryptocurrency worlds don't have that. When, when things go bad or there's a fear in the market, there is no bottom. It can, it can shoot up or down fast, which is the volatility aspect that we've seen. And that, but that is just also, again, it's a feature, not a bug of that system because you don't want that. But there's certain things that can be built to have those protections if you want, we just haven't seen them emerge yet. And that you're right, they may very well emerge in the banking context of, okay, big organization can offer these things. Yes, it's not what Satoshi's vision was at the start, written into the first Genesis block, but they can use the open source tools like anybody else. It's like large organizations starting to look at DAO contracts and voting tools to get information from people that they couldn't otherwise get at great cost because DAO frameworks allow voting and, and um, community input in a way that was too expensive to find before. And now that's quite easy to get. And it's all there. Again, open source software ready to go. That is a super interesting area for me, especially for ESG and activism. But again, that's another hour. Later on, or I might be able to get you some excellent guests who know who are really into those DAO points no, further than me. Yeah. You know, for any of your, your viewers, there's, an, there's a really fantastic thesis from Alex Sims, who's a uh, open-based lawyer who's done as a PhD under Macquarie University, which is a huge thesis on about 380 pages on DAOs and law. If you if you wish to really nerd out and see some fascinating examples of the governance tools there, that's a great starting point. But, um, you know, it's it, it, that's only going to keep getting bigger as well. So the DAO space, I don't think there was, you know, huge announcements around DAOs around blockchain week, but NFTs are massive and growing bigger. The stablecoin aspects are massive and growing bigger. The DAO space, there's so many elements that are growing larger. I almost feel like blockchain lawyers will end up specializing in some of these discrete areas because it's so big um, and it's growing so fast and the value being created there is cannot be ignored, which is really significant. So, you know, I, I think that's, that's really a huge takeaway to, to move from, from that. What's that, what's happened in the last, you know, three or four years. It feels like things are accelerating faster, but it's the years of hard work that have happened previously that have and really yeah, led to that moving. And the foundations that are wonderfully sturdy. So listen, on that beautiful note of, how much growth and how are we going? Thank you so much for your time today. No, thanks so much for having me. The new Clans platform is currently in open beta and is looking for foundational members to help us shape it. Yes, it's really your chance to help bring a new platform to life. We are looking for first users and members to help us. And so wanted to ask our community to rally around and help us with our first release. The first 500 members will receive Gen Zero status which comes with lifetime benefits like priority support, early feature access, and a heap more. Don't worry, you don't have to be Gen Z to uh, enter, obviously, just like me. Plus, you get to tell us what to do and what you'd like to see improved, which is always nice. To find out how you can join us, please see the link in the notes below.